Dive, hark, gold, strange, under, bones, teeth, flood, gently, unfold, toes, keep, hourly, they, rats. Gold teeth gently unfold bones under rats they hourly keep. Rats hourly drive under flood toes gold bones. Gold bones keep strange rats under flood dive. Gently gold flood rats hourly. Teeth bones hark strange toes unfold gold rats. Teeth bones keep gold rats. Dive under strange flood hourly. Dive under gold flood gently. They dive toes under rats. They unfold toes under gold rats. Teeth hourly gently keep flood rats gold. Under bones dive strange teeth rats. Rats toes gently keep strange good teeth under flood bones. Hark gold bones flood under strange dive teeth hourly. Hello and welcome. I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's October 26th, 2020, and today we are hoping that the artist will speak upon 25 years of the tunnel. Yes, today for 42 minutes, we are meeting Ted Morrissey, creator of the Tunnel at 25 website symposium and author of the recent work, The Artist Spoke, available from 12 Winters Press. The Artist Spoke is a love letter, a eulogy, and a hymn of hope. Avant-garde author Elizabeth Winters has died en route to Revelation, a literary event for her readers who have volunteered to be part of her latest and final novel without knowing that what their participation would entail. Christopher Kraft has traveled to Revelation, hoping all will be revealed and that he will be revitalized by the event. The author's death affects everything, however, especially the lives of the 753 Logos, who are devoted to Elizabeth Winters and her work. The experience of Revelation takes another turn when Chris meets Beth Winterberry, a Logos to whom he is immediately attracted. The Artist Spoke is about the love of literature, the death of reading, and the hope that books will rise again. Ted Morrissey, PhD in English Studies, is an author, teacher, lecturer, scholar, and publisher who lives near Springfield, Illinois. He is an award-winning writer, which includes his books Miss Seville, Crow Song for the Stricken, and the monograph The Beowulf Poet and His Real Monsters. More information about him and his website can be found at tedmorrissey.com, to which we'll link. It is an honor to be meeting Dr. Morrissey today. How are you doing? I'm doing very good, Doug. Thank you for inviting me on to your podcast. You bet. Well, thank you for uh, just being out there. I um, I had no idea. It, it's just one of these interesting synchronicities where my book club was doing the tunnel and just poking around to get you know extra information. I discovered that your symposium was happening roughly about the same time, and so it was really serendipitous for us. But um, tell us about the tunnel at twenty-five, how that came to be, and you know. 
your role in that project? Well, I'm a uh, devotee, maybe disciple isn't too strong of a word, of uh, William H. Gass, the author, and I've been uh, devoted to him and his, his writing uh, for more than a decade now. Uh, that's mainly consisted of uh, giving conference presentations, but also writing reviews and just uh, trying to preach the gospel, as, as we say. Uh, but um, earlier this year, I, I did the math and realized that his magnum opus, The Tunnel, was turning 25 this year. And it's, uh, it's a really uh, challenging book, and it doesn't really get read much anymore in spite of its uh, you know, winning the American Book Award and, and being um, – you know, kind of a, a literary uh, icon of sorts for, for over 25 years as he was working on it. So I thought uh, that I would try to, uh, you know, to try to get a little more interest in the book. And so I came up with this idea of having this, uh, this symposium. Uh, it really wouldn't be practical to have it in, a, you know, in person. It probably wouldn't be practical to do it any time, but certainly during the pandemic, it wasn't practical. So I decided instead to create this uh, website and to invite gas folks to uh, contribute material to the website and try to have some sort of online, you know, uh, uh, experience for, for people visiting the website in terms of uh, finding out more about the tunnel and about gas and hopefully encouraging them to, uh, to read the tunnel. So uh, originally, was it going to be an in-person thing or did it kind of happen uh, simultaneously with the pandemic? It happened simultaneously with the pandemic. Like I said, I didn't really do the math until this spring, it kind of popped into my head that, uh, gosh, that's been 25 years. And so, uh, you know, that's one of those milestones that oftentimes we recognize books at a particular, particular, you know, longevity. And so, uh, no, I, I never thought of it being, um, some kind of a, a physical event. I mean, that would be wonderful, but, uh, just the logistics of planning that would be, you know, particularly challenging. And then part of this was, uh, in, association with the library that houses his papers is that correct yeah well it uh, just as a as a good fortune on my part i guess i live fairly close to st louis and uh and he was an instructor or professor at uh, washington university in st louis and so they also archive his papers so for the last uh, several years i've you know, gotten to know the curator of those papers, a gentleman named Joel Miner, and I've visited the archives on several occasions and have used them for my own research and writing somewhat. And uh, so um, I, Joel was one of those folks I definitely wanted to be involved with uh, contributing to the symposium. And, uh, and WashU, the WashU libraries, they were planning their own, uh, you know, celebration and recognition of the tunnel as well. So we've just kind of uh, combined forces to uh, to try to do, you know, various things somewhat in coordination together. And so the Tunnel at 25, this website symposium, there's an introduction, and then you have different contributors uh, writing essays about various things. One of the people, um, Alec Lee, I I'm going to blow his last name, I think. Um, uh, he was the one who wrote the piece that a lot of people discover, uh, maybe it was earlier this year, in the New York Times about about um, the, the, the strangeness of the time the tunnel came out and how it is more in sync with our moment now. Um, the, the piece that you wrote, however, for the for the website has to do with um, 
something that I actually found pretty difficult, which is separating William Gass from Kohler. There, there is some similarities between the author and the, the narrator in the tunnel. And if you, if you gave like a really simple reading, you would just assume that, you know, this is William Gass giving voice to all his dissatisfaction. Could you talk about your essay a little bit? Yeah, the the like I said, the novel uh, came out, you know, in, in kind of bits and pieces over the course of 26 years, and but then ultimately it was published as a, you know, a, a novel uh, in 1995, and and uh, and so a lot of people it had been on their radar, you know, for a quarter of a century, and so there was a lot of anticipation for, you know, what would the whole thing look like when it came out, and and there was just a really wide variety of reactions, and and there were there were a lot of people, a lot of reviewers who were quite actually hostile towards the novel and towards Gass himself because the, the main character of the novel is, is very much like, uh, very much like Gass in, in, in a number of ways. For one thing, his name is William Kohler versus William Gass. He's a professor at a, a university as Gass was throughout his career. And in fact, uh, the university seems very much like Purdue university, which is where Gass was teaching when he started writing the tunnel in 1966. Um, and so uh, there's just a lot of similarities between the, the main character and, and the author himself. And so consequently, as you say, um, a lot of reviewers um, found a lot of the, you know, the, the things that uh, Kohler, the narrator, has to say, which, uh, you know, are quite harsh oftentimes. Uh, some people have viewed him as sort of a Nazi sympathizer, although that's kind of a whole other issue to get into. But, but nevertheless, um, you know, they had a really hard time separating uh, Kohler the narrator from Gas, the author, and so there was a lot of hostility kind of directed at at the book and, and, and at Gas. He claimed that he was intentionally kind of blurring those lines in part to sort of test readers to see which readers were, you know, adept at being able to separate uh, an author from their work or and those that were more inclined to sort of fall into that trap of thinking that the, the narrators of books were essentially the the voices of, of their authors. And so he claimed that he was anticipating that potential, you know, uh, reaction and that it was a test he was giving reviewers and, and a lot of them failed, he said. So, well, initially, so this is what's tricky. I think my first time through it, I definitely was failing because it is such a an unfiltered dark lens through which you're viewing this and so it was hard for me not to look at uh gas's bio and think that so much of that must be him um but then you know you know after i spoke about it in our actual club and then i um i went back through the book again uh again three quarters of the way or so i didn't i didn't go all the way but pretty close and and at that point in time it definitely seemed like he was doing something really interesting because we generally you know and this is the idea that you everyone's thoughts are are, are personal and private and and so to really be you know i wouldn't want my thoughts out in the world you know it, it's really an interesting view uh into into this this man's consciousness. How many times have you read the tunnel? Well, I've read it through and through twice, uh, but I've dipped into it and read sections of it. Uh, wrote about sections of it on multiple occasions. 
this past summer, I intended to reread it stem to stern again, and then I just it got away from me. Time did, and and so I didn't read it uh, completely again this past summer, but I did again read a lot of sections of it. Plus, I was you know sort of editing um, a lot of the uh, contributions to the symposium, and part of that was to go back and check people's quotes and make sure they were accurate and things like that. And, and then doing this during the pandemic was kind of an interesting experience in and of itself. Uh, uh, there was one a contributor who really wanted to contribute, but um, he had gotten separated from his copy of the tunnel. And so he couldn't find, you know, he didn't have any access to the quotes that he wanted to use in his, um, in his paper. And so I, I happily volunteered to be his research assistant. So he kind of gave me kind of some general ideas, what sorts of quotes he was looking for. So I poured through it and found some quotes and so forth and, and, and sent those to him via email. And so he used those to, to finalize his paper. So, so I haven't, I haven't read it, uh, you know, in its entirety for a while, but like I said, I keep dipping into it over the years. I, I listened to your, uh, podcasts about uh, the tunnel and i was i was duly impressed uh you know i was kept thinking gosh i hope he doesn't quiz me during the podcast because he seems to know it better than i do at this point uh but you all really got into some very uh you know fine details about the book and, and had a really interesting discussion about it well thank you um uh <laughs> so i actually um listen to a lot of books these days because it's just it's easier for me i have plenty of dumb time to listen to things i'm wondering have you ever uh been exposed to the you know william gass reading his own book it's it's quite fabulous yeah the audio book that it is something else he, he was a great reader of his own work i i always felt and uh yeah the audio book is like 45 hours of listening enjoyment but uh you know, so it, it, it's quite an investment to, to listen to the whole thing. But uh, but he, he is a great reader of his work. And, uh, you know, luckily, besides that, we have, uh, you know, YouTube videos of him reading his work. And I got to see him live on three occasions uh, reading his work. So that was a that was a great experience as well. But uh, but, yeah, he does. A, he does a great job in that in the audiobook. I know there were a lot of uh, outtakes. That's one of the things that the uh, gas archive has at Washington University is the the outtakes of the his audio reading. I have not listened to those, but I, I, I hear there are some. You know, they they kind of get uh, a little bit uh, giddy at times. You know, as you can imagine, when you're when you're reading that much material, you can you can kind of probably get a little bit uh, flustered at times. But well, the the experience I had with the audiobook is what. Uh, so when I read your essay that you presented at a conference about the architecture of the tunnel mm -hmm. or the tunnel as architecture. Um, the audiobook really, I had that same experience where it seems like there's, you, you don't have a ton of context when you start this book and it kind of begins to accumulate. But I realized that there's enough context that no, it's almost like a record where you could drop the needle anywhere and eventually you'd be up to speed. You know, like you were talking about each of the Philippics as its own separate kind of room. And from one room, you could view another room. You know, you would get more information, but you would see things from different perspectives, which was really interesting. But I really appreciate that essay because you articulated something that I kind of, I was grokking, like, you know, the audio book, you could really put the audio on uh, shuffle 
and it, you know you would have a different experience every time but it would be i don't feel like you would be necessarily losing anything if you weren't going in the order that he had set out in the in the published book right right no i i think you're definitely right and and i I know you talked in your other podcast about the fact that he, he in his uh, perfect world, uh, the tunnel would have been released as just a loose sheaf of papers, you know, unbound. And so that really would have encouraged uh, readers to sort of pour through it at their discretion. Uh, you know, and it would have been stuffed with like uh, old paper bags and, and, and crossword puzzles and all kinds of things, you know, in between the pages of the of the manuscript. And and so that, too, would have, uh, you know, encouraged people to jump in here versus there and and not necessarily read it from page one to page, you know, 652 or, or whatever it would be, uh, you know, straight through or whatever. Yeah, that that whole idea of his, well, you know, one of the things I I find so fascinating about Gass's work is he was very interested in other art forms and tried to sort of use those as inspiration for his writing. So architecture was certainly one of those art forms that he was very interested in and and, uh, used it as sort of a model for for a lot of his work, uh, but also music, um, you know, and and other sorts of things. And so uh, so his trying to kind of marry some of the uh, techniques and the elements of other art forms into his writing, I I always found very admirable and very interesting. Well, now I'm curious, are you familiar at all with Mark Z. Danielewski's House of Leaves? I am not. I mean, I I am by reputation, and it's, you know, one of a thousand books is on my list that I know I should read, but I I have not actually read it. But again, I, I... in your podcast, I know you discussed it quite a bit, especially comparing it to Gas's The Tunnel. And, and I uh, certainly, you know, it made sense to me a lot of what you were saying regarding how the two books operate, et cetera. Well, it just, I, it's hard for me not to believe that he was really heavily using The Tunnel as inspiration. So House of Leaves came out in 2000. You know, he kind of conceived the idea in, in like about 94, I think. But um, there's just so much playfulness with the text and y- y- like the artistry of the visual layout of the pages that I just I can't not believe that he wasn't inspired by the tunnel, which I really feel like in that respect was just light years ahead of anything else. I mean, it, I know there are other books like that, but. It, you know, it, just the level of detail that you would have to have with the typesetter really is uh, amazing to me. Right. Well, have you, are you familiar with Gass's uh, Willie Masters' Lonesome Wife, that little novella that came out in 1968? This was my introduction to Gass. And oh, okay. like we, okay. you know, like we said in the podcast, for whatever reason, there's such strange coincidence or confusion between Gaddis and Gass, and it's probably just the last name. Right. Well, they, partly the last name, but also, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, the, the Williams, but, um, you know, they, they sort of ran in, in similar circles and and uh, were uh, often, uh, you know, kind of spoken of in the same breath. Uh, they were friends and, and they, they went to Russia together to do a literary sort of diplomatic mission, I think, and give some readings and so forth. And so they had a very interesting uh, relationship themselves. And, and, 
And actually, uh, I, I think in your podcast, you mentioned uh, Gaddis's big book, The Recognitions. And uh, my actual first reading of Gas was his introduction to the recognitions. And one of the things he talks about in that is he sort of jokes about the fact that people have always confused their biographies and kind of mixed up details into sort of a hybrid, you know, hybrid single author with kind of bits and pieces of, of their various biographies kind of mixed into it or whatever. But uh, uh, yeah, they definitely, you know, were oftentimes kind of confused with one another. But back to this idea of, um, Mark Danielewski, it's interesting because the type of fans that he has and the, you know, what he's done in recent years reminds me of your character, Elizabeth Winters. Um, the idea of his fans uh, all getting tattoos of a single word um, seems like something that th those people are already doing. And so it, it um, can, do you want to talk a little bit about the artist spoke? Sure. Sure. I appreciate that opportunity. Yeah. It's this novel of mine that's just sort of coming out into the world now. Um, you know, actually my inspiration initially was the author, uh, Shelley Jackson. I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she actually did a project called skin a number of years ago, which, uh, was basically her her story uh, imprinted one word at a time on on people's skin, and um, you know, and, and the only way to to know the book, to read the book, was to be part of it, and then presumably you would send her a picture of your tattoo, and and she would send the participants, you know, all the other tattoos in in, in order, so you could read it. Um, and I'm not really a tattoo guy. I don't have anything against it. I think I just have uh, commitment issues, so I've never been able to actually get a tattoo. But um, if I were going to get one, that would be something I would have been interested in. But I, I was a Johnny come lately to that project, and she, she had all the skin she needed for her uh, for her book. But that always had kind of lodged into my my brain, and I tried to write about that. Tried to write a novel or a short story about it uh, several times over the years, and. And finally, and I, I can't remember if it was late 2015 or very early 2016, I kind of found a way into the book. And, and, and in my version of things, uh, there's a, an author, which, again, I've kind of modeled after Shelley Jackson, but I, I call her Elizabeth Winters, and she has um, uh, gotten 753 uh, people to volunteer to be a part of this book and get a tattoo but they don't really know beyond that um, what what it all entails, and and, and there's going to be this this big literary event uh, called Revelation where she's going to be there and explain to them exactly what their participation in the project is going to be, et cetera. But lo and behold, she uh, she dies in a in a plane accident. I'm not giving much away. This happens on the first page of the novel. So, um, and uh, so and with her goes her plan. She had not shared with anyone exactly what she had in mind with with her book. And so you have all these people with these tattoos who are connected and that they are part of the book, but they don't know what the story is about or what, what their, what their sort of part of it, part of it is what their, what part they play in it and, and that kind of thing. And so then that kind of, you know, that's sort of the catalyst for the, the plot of the book from, from there on out. Yeah. And so the, the piece that I wrote, uh, read at the very beginning was some of the, some of the words um, from this prologue to this story. But, you know, what you muse on in, in this novel is 
you know, the idea of publishing and poetry, but also, you know, perspective and meaning. I'm curious about the, the length of this work and, and what that has to do with both, you know, publishing and um, where we're at now with how people read. The, the length of my book, you mean? Yeah, or? yeah, this, this work. Oh, okay. You know, was that influenced at all by how people read these days or? In terms of its brevity, you're saying? Or? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, no, it it is it is a shorter, more diminutive sort of novel. Um, you know that word novel is a is an interesting one. Uh, I actually teach a, you know, I teach in uh, Lindenwood University's MFA program, uh, and I teach a course in the long story and the novella. And one of the issues we we deal with is you know what's the difference? When does a long story become a novella? When does a novella become a novel? You know, is there are there some actual you know artistic guidelines or is it just a matter of semantics and so forth? And, and um, so I, I know there are certainly are people out there that would consider my novel more of a novella in terms of length. It's a, I think it comes out of 188 pages or something like that. Um, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm of the opinion that, um, you know, a novel is what we, what we make of it. I mean, it is sort of a matter of semantics, you know, to, to kind of bring it back to, to gas here, I mean, that's kind of one of the lessons I think I learned from gas in that, um, you know, you look at something like the tunnel and you certainly could probably make a case that it's more of a, I don't know, collection of short stories or some, or a collection of long stories, maybe a collection of novellas, but yet they all kind of tie together in a way that, uh, that they have this sort of, uh, you know, this novelistic feel to them. And so I, I've, I've really broadened my, my own sense of what a novel is, uh, in terms of uh, you know not being too concerned about length and, and that kind of thing, but rather you know is it sort of an artistic whole? Does it does it does it make it a, a whole artistic statement as as a book? And if so, then you know it kind of qualifies as a, as a novel. Um, so anyway, yeah, I, I um the, uh, part of you know I it takes me a long time to write a book for one thing. You know I, I I'm a teacher and I, I uh, you know, don't really have as much time to write as I would like. And so I, I basically have about 30 or 40 minutes a day that I, I can really devote to my writing. So at that, at that clip, it, it can take quite a while to amass a whole manuscript. And so, um, you know, I think part of it is, uh, you know, after, after a number of years of working on a project, I'm sort of ready to uh, put a bow on it and, and put it out into the world. Uh, and so I, I probably do tend to think in, in terms of a little bit shorter units uh, than what uh, maybe the traditional novelist might. But, but there certainly is that, that phenomenon that uh, our, our, our reading attention span, you know, those of us who still do read has, has kind of gotten shorter and shorter over the years. I, you know, I write a, a lot of uh, short stories, or, or, although they tend to be more, uh, kind of episodes and larger works that, I, that I'm working on, but I like to send them out and, and get them published kind of along the way. And, and increasingly over the years, uh, the, the length of, of, you know, quote unquote short stories that, that little magazines, you know, literary magazines will even consider it's just getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Uh, pretty much nowadays, if you have something beyond uh, 5,000 words, it, it's just an increasingly difficult to even find some place to send it. You know, every, everyone now wants flash fiction or, you know, two or 3,000 words is kind of their absolute max. And, and so uh, I think, uh, you know, there, there definitely is that, uh, that phenomenon in our culture that, that, 
that people do not want, you know, longish books, certainly. And, and of course, that also contributes to why people are, tend not to want to read the tunnel. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a huge book to try to get into, and, and most people just don't have the, don't have the patience or the gumption to, to even kind of wade into something like that. Well, yeah, and for my money, I don't know that, like, um, things are are what they are, and they either you know work or they don't. And so uh, there's there's a lot of stuff that happens, you know. Even though this is a like you were saying, like a, the brevity of the work, um, it's it there's a lot <laughs> there's a lot going on in there, uh, and so. One of the things that I was interested in is, um, well, I, I love that it. There's just these hints of sci-fi on the edges every now and again. It's just a a hint that there's more going on than you know what meets the eye. But I really like this theme of uh, you know considering different perspectives. So you know you in the writing class there's the peeper exercise, which I thought was was fun. But then also when when Chris is at the the art exhibit, you know, he he says, I'm going to go through this differently than, you know, which reminded me of your essay in the tunnel, too, where, you know, you know, I'm sure this is curated a certain way, but I want to see it from a different perspective, you know, and, and all of that kind of illuminates right. my own feeling about how literature gives you a view into someone else's head. You get to live a different life, which I don't really feel like TV does because you participate in a book, whereas TV just kind of passes over you. Right, right. Yeah, uh, the the art museum scene, I, I that was one of the, you know, I enjoyed that writing that one in particular. Um, I, I had actually at a conference a, a couple of years ago, I went to a presentation and, you know, you go to these literature conferences and most of the presentations, of course, are about talk, people talking about books. Uh, but uh, this particular uh, woman, uh, her specialty was reading museums. And she basically would go to various museums with the idea being that whoever put the museum together, you know, chose the exhibits and the order in which they they go and, and the plaques that go along with them to explain what the exhibits are, et cetera, et cetera, that they've got a particular you know, narrative in mind that they're trying to, uh, that they're trying to express to visitors to the museum. And so her, her specialty was to sort of read that and, and see, well, what, what does this museum seem to be saying about, you know, whatever it's, whatever its subject is. And so that I was kind of mindful of that as I, I wrote that scene. Uh, yeah, I actually, it's a, it's a, it's Chris who goes through it as it's supposed as it's sort of laid out, but it's the other character, the other main character, uh, Beth Winterberry, who's the who's the rebel, and she's the one who doesn't want to be manipulated by the museum and and goes through it in a in a different order just to uh, kind of try to get her own perspective on things. In my in my books, the the women are always smarter than the guys because I think that's kind of the way real life is. So, your book also starts on a train, which it might not you know have any more meaning than that was the best transportation for Chris to take to the get to the conference but there's something about just starting there that I felt like removed it from you know so he wasn't able to have his devices um he he just he was it seemed like he was out of bounds of the normal uh, reality space at the beginning of this which set a nice tone for the whole thing I think because there is 
I did get the, you know, there's this feeling of like if you ever have gone to a conference or something where you're completely out of your normal life and um you know it's almost like more of a a dream space in some regards and I I felt like you really captured that well. Well thank you. Yeah, a lot of what I was playing with in the book is this idea of uh, only having kind of partial knowledge of things, you know, we, we keep encounter or in the book, they, you know, they keep encountering things where they sort of have a hint or, or maybe a few details about this. And so they're always trying to sort of construct, you know, what the whole is based on these, these hints and these, these little bits of details. And, 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 you know, generally speaking, I don't really, you know, uh, comment, on, on how successful they are, because quite frankly, oftentimes I don't know how successful they are in terms of uh, what they're kind of reconstructing. But I, but I do feel like uh, you know we we live in this kind of weird time where on the one hand we are drowning in an ocean of information, whether it's tweets or or you know alerts on our phones or whatever it is. But yet at the same time, you know so much of it is fragmentary, and we're we get all these sort of distorted views of things in spite of, um, in spite of all the information. In fact, you know, I'm, I'm of an age, I mean, I'm 58 where I, I, you know, I grew up without all of that stuff. And I, in, in retrospect, maybe I'm just being nostalgic or something, but I, I really felt like in many ways when I was younger, I had sort of a better grasp of the world around me. Uh, probably I just, you know, it was just simpler or something but but nowadays in spite of uh, all of our technology and like i said this this constant flood of information it seems to make everything you know more slippery and, and harder to understand and, and and so on well i also have to comment on the tension that propels this book because because of how you set up your um your author you really don't know what's going on i mean you you know what's happening but like you said um you only have fragments and so you can only speculate you know if there is more than meets the eye especially since the larger work is um what is it called something conspiracy the isolation of yeah the isolation of conspiracy yeah right but the interesting thought i had is that her bibliography is very complete and you're you're you know these our our protagonists are constantly talking about you know their favorite parts of this different uh literary background do you have any desire to you know go through and and explore some of these works that um elizabeth winters has written i do you know it's it's funny because when i on the first drafting of this I, I was just sort of throwing you know titles out there and, and didn't really have much idea what they were about or whatever. And, and, uh, when I kind of finished a complete draft, which was this past spring, and then I've been working for the last several months on revising and, and for me, revision is almost always adding to, and, and a lot of what, what that adding to was, was fleshing out her bibliography and, and, and so on. For, for example, um, I, I made some sort of, uh, enigmatic, uh, reference to some reading she did in Sedona, Arizona, that was sort of infamous. But that's all I said about it at the time, because I didn't know. I just kind of threw it out there. And then as I was revising, I thought, hmm, I wonder what that was all about. I wonder what was going on with that. So then I had to kind of figure out, well, what 
what happened in that reading that was so mysterious and, and, and how does that kind of, uh, you know, complement or, 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 you know, contradict or, or confuse, you know, other things in the book or whatever. So, so yeah, the, the, that was, that was one of the fun parts too, is, is coming up with these titles of, of books and, and stories and so forth that don't actually exist and then kind of referencing characters in them and, and so on. So they kind of, were being, you know, kind of, being created through the process of creating my own book, you know. Poetry is also important to the characters in this book, and it definitely was important to William Gass as well. Uh, just thinking about the character, it it created a world that I wanted to be in as far as uh, like a celebrated author. Now, of course, we aren't sure whether or not it's 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 uh legitimate so um chris's ex katie isn't sure whether or not she's just a good marketer um but i was thinking back i think you know in the 60s people read poetry there were people who would publish collections that uh everyday folks would buy right well that that's it's definitely um something that it's uh, it, that's a part of my uh you know thoughts you know I, I i grew up in a time where literature was important and, and people read books and talked about books and and you know and i i kind of uh set my sights on being a writer under the uh, understanding or the ex expectation that at least some people would read what i was writing and maybe talk about it a little bit and i and lo and behold i finally get to a point in my life where maybe i have a you know, enough, uh, skill, a uh, skill set that I can actually write some decent stuff. And, and I've kind of run, run into the experience where there's nobody who really wants to read it. You know, it's like, um, I'm really nostalgic for those days where, uh, you know, writing was important and people would go to, to, to poetry readings and, and, and all kinds of things. And, uh, you know, we just, uh, I mean, I, I think, I think if you live in a, in a big enough city, you can still find maybe that kind of niche population. But if you're kind of, uh, living amongst the cornfields, you know, as I am, it's really hard to find that, that kind of community that really, that really supports that. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, really interested in, in well, I'm interested in all literature, but the modernists and James Joyce and Gertrude Stein and and that sort of thing. And I, I'm I'm fascinated by the fact that that those writers, you know, that I just mentioned, plus others like Virginia Woolf, et cetera, you know, were writing these really difficult, challenging books. But yet the general population, you know, knew knew who they were and, and, and kind of knew what was going on without the about their work. And not that necessarily everybody was you know, uh, reading every word of Finnegan's Wake as it was published you know, episodically or something. But I mean, people knew who James Joyce was and they, they knew about about his work. And, you know, uh, the New York Times would would review literary journals, you know, and, and write about the new releases, you know, of these avant-garde journals and what was in them and who was in them. And, you know, when Gertrude Stein returned to the U.S. after all those years of being in Paris, she received a hero's welcome. I mean, they read her name on lights in Times Square, you know, and, and we just don't live in a world now where there's that much interest in people who take writing really seriously, you know, whether it's novels or poetry or whatever it is. And I, I really miss those days. I, I wish it were that kind of world now. And so I, I think that nostalgia probably crept into my book quite a bit. Speaking of reading and writing, um, 
So what are what are you reading these days? What do you like to read? And then you know what are you what are you working on for the future? Well, I, I I'm a very uh, wide ranging sort of reader. Um, I've got a lot of different things going on. Um, one of the things I'm about, uh, I, because of this, uh, the Tunnel at 25 project, I, I kind of uh, got to know some other folks out there who were interested in similar kinds of writing, similar kinds of authors. So I, I got an invitation to, to write uh, something about Robert Coover for a uh, kind of an anthology that's being put together in celebration of his 89th birthday next year. And I'm not really... Um, you know, too much of a Coover person. I don't have anything against Robert Coover. I've just, I just haven't read a lot of his work. So, so anyway, I decided I wanted to work with his novel Noir, which is a kind of detective, kind of a weird postmodern detective novel. And so I've been reading that with a mind of, you know, I'm going to be writing about it. So I'm kind of reading it in a little bit different way than you might read other kinds of things. Um, Normally I would be, um, you know, really thinking hard about another kind of gas paper, um, but, uh, right now I don't have anything specific on the horizon. So, you know, I'm not really doing that sort of thing, but, uh, uh, actually when you called, I was reading the turn of the screw. I'm, I'm teaching that to my high school students right now. Cause that's another gig. That's my main gig in fact. And, um, so I'm reading a little Henry James on the side too, while we're, while we're going through lots of other things in terms of my own writing. Um, I've been working on a, a new, uh, I'll call it a novel, um, set in, in, uh, the early part of the 20th century. Uh, and, uh, it's all set during about a 24 hour period where the, a big blizzard has has hit this little community and, and everyone's kind of got their own sort of little stories, but they're all interconnected and, and so on. And, and, uh, three of the pieces, the first three pieces, in fact, they were published here and there, but I, I sent them to uh word runner, which is a little press that does uh, eBooks and they, they selected it to do a, uh, a kind of an e-chat book. Uh, so the first three stories are going to come out in a little miniature collection in December. But in the meantime, I've added a fourth uh, episode, and I'm, I just started working on a fifth episode. Uh, so, so that's kind of what I'm focused on, on creative writing now. So a lot of different things happening. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Well, thank you, Doug. I really appreciate it. You bet. You've been listening to Ted Morrissey on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook. Ready to check out past shows. Be sure and visit, whoa, let's say, um, for more information about Dr. Morrissey, visit his website, tedmorrissey.com. For more information about the SyncBook, our guest, check out past shows, just subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, Check out others. It's currently all the SyncBook Radio archives are free. We also see, feature a great search engine to help you find what you need. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much. And I have to end with this quote by William Gask because it's so enigmatic. But he, he said, I write because I hate a lot. Hard. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs>